The knives are out in Overland Park, Kansas, over development deals, and the teachers in the Shawnee Mission School District are going to the mats with the school board. What's that all about? That's on Deep Background today, and we'll talk a little bit about the Chiefs Parade as well. I'm Dave Helling with the Stars Editorial Board, and again, you are on Deep Background. Greetings, you're on Deep Background for February 6th, 2020. I think that's right, February 7th, somewhere in the first part of February. We're on number six. Yeah, Dave Helling with the Kansas City Stars editorial board. My good friend Derek Donovan, colleague on the editorial board. He's joining us as always. And Sarah Ritter of the Johnson County Bureau of the Kansas City Stars. Sarah, so great to have you around. Um, Before we talk about what we're really going to talk about in the podcast. You got a little piece of the parade, Chiefs Parade on uh, Tuesday, what or Wednesday. What was that like? Yeah, so we had a ton of reporters. We were out in full force. My assignment was kind of seeing if they had addressed the issues that happened during the 2015 Royals Parade with the shuttle service. Um, it does seem, I went to a few of the different spots, it seems like they had fixed those problems. They had double the number of shuttles out there and school buses, and so people seemed happy with that, but it was it was crazy. And the shuttles <laughs> seemed pretty popular, right? I mean, people, that was a good way to get into downtown, so you didn't have to mess with parking, that type of thing. Yeah, they set the stops back further, so there was one at Oak Park Mall and one at Swope Park. Um, and by 10.30, I mean, you could just hop on a bus. There was no line. So, yeah, they definitely seemed happy with it. In 2015, you probably know that people were parking on I-35 uh, just west of downtown. Yeah, walking right in the median and say yeah. walking on, uh, <laughs> into downtown. Um, but, Derek, you mentioned earlier that some of the crowd was a bit rowdier maybe than families would typically like. Is that right? And I'm curious whether you saw this out at the locations you were at. I edit the letters to the editor um, for the Star, and I've had had multiple letters today talking about how disappointed they were seeing all the drinking among the fans and also the players. Um, did you see, were people pre-partying when they were getting on their shuttles? People had their coolers and, you know, containers where you could tell. Yeah, 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 people were ready. Chiefs fans are different <laughs> from Royals fans. And this is not to cast aspersions, but, you know, Chiefs is just a rowdier crowd than when you go to the baseball game. Right, and I, but also, you know, it was colder. I think people might have thought maybe a beer or two would warm them up a little bit. That was part <laughs> of it. But the the crowd was smaller than I think anticipated, right, Derek? I mean, they were talking about a million people. It wasn't a million people. What was your impression of how, how thick the crowds were? It was slightly smaller than, you know, the estimates that I heard. Yeah, I was surprised to see the police department put out, here's how many arrests we had, considering there are so many complaints yeah. of people out there. It didn't seem like they arrested too many people. They did a great job, by the way, on the car. We've talked about that in the editorial board meeting this morning, where you had one guy who decided he wanted to drive down the length of Grand, and he was prevented from doing so rather aggressively, as should have been the case. I mean, I know they were really worried about cars. Yeah particularly being a danger to the crowd. And it does look like KCPD really did st- uh, stand up and do the right thing. Well, let's, ho- let's, hope we, yeah, let's hope we can have another parade next year. Okay, let's move on to news, which is the real reason we asked Sarah to come chat with us a little bit. Um, uh, and the first thing we want to talk about is the troubled, and I think that's a fair word, troubled negotiations and the end of the process between the teachers' union and the Shawnee Mission School District and the Shawnee Mission School Board. And, I, I, you know, I've covered those negotiations in past years for many years, 
and they're always a little rocky because I think the teachers want you know, to use their power to get a little more money and the board sort of yes or no. But I've never seen it as acrimonious as this year turned out to be. Why don't you, Sarah, first give us a sense of what what the story was recently, the approval of the contract, where we stand now, and really your own impressions as to whether things are really, really bad between the teachers union and the school board. Sure, so as far back as I've looked, this is the longest I've seen since at least the early 90s as far as I could find, that negotiations have gone on. They haven't had a contract this school year, so everybody's still operating under last year's school um, year contract. And yeah, they've been negotiating almost a year now since last spring, and they haven't been able to come to terms. Um, the teachers have been really focused on workloads, and they work, you know, they instruct more classes each day than in Blue Valley or neighboring districts. Um, and the district really just didn't budge on its salary increase offer either. So throughout a whole year-long process, they really kind of ended up with a very similar contract to what the district had been offering, um, except they extended it a year, which the union was saying, um, you just don't want to deal with us again. <laughs> because they, they, they imposed a three-year contract on them. Yeah, so it came to the point where it was up to the school board. They couldn't reach a negotiation, so the school board imposed its own unilateral contract, which, according to the union, is the first time they've ever done a long-term three-year unilateral contract. So it's kind of a take-it-or-leave-it contract. Um, teachers now have around 10 days now or something like that to either accept that contract, continue working under last year's contract, or walk away from the contract. And we don't know what the reaction will be yet, but let's back up just a little bit. You mentioned uh, the two major areas of disagreement, and let's go through those just briefly. My uh, reading suggests that the salary difference was the board was offering roughly 1%, and the teachers wanted two. Is that about right? And, that's where things started off, yes. Um, and then the district eventually lowered that more and more, or the union lowered that more and more. The district stayed at that 1%. Tried to come closer yeah. to the 1%. So they went through the state-mandated fact-finding process. Um, the fact-finder said that the union is off, is requesting too much. Um, it should be lowered. The district could offer a little bit more. The district did not do that. Yeah, and there were other issues teachers who quit sometimes have to pay a penalty and there were other things that they were negotiating but basically the and and health care costs which are an issue yes. in almost every collective bargaining setting today so but those were sort of it seemed solvable the main thing was salary and then um, this workload issue and and what in essence the teachers as I understood it were saying Sarah was look we agreed to go to this extra class back when times were tough uh, to save money and to make sure that the district didn't have to hire a bunch of new teachers, but now the times are good. And that was their whole, whole argument that the state of Kansas had now come up with another $9 million, at least in the first year in state aid, that that money should go to reduce reduce the workload. Um, and, and then, of course, the raise on the other side. And the school district wouldn't budge on workload either, which has surprised me. Yeah. Yeah, and it was kind of interesting in negotiations for teachers to be asking for more teachers to be hired. It wasn't just that we want a 1% raise or 1.5 or whatever. We want more teachers so our class sizes are smaller. We want to go back to where we were teaching five classes a day rather than six. A lot of teachers shared very emotional stories of, you know, only having half an hour to plan for four different, 
you know, subjects and things like that and, you know, working 80 hour weeks and things like that. So, um, yeah, the district really didn't move on that. They said they need a longer term sustainable plan to be able to start implementing those changes, which they claim they will start in June during the strategic planning session. But I don't think teachers are hopeful after the process that and happened. And certainly here. not for the next school year. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, what, do, do we have any sense as to why the board was so intransigent on that well, point? Well, I think in the fact finders report, you can see it a little bit too, that no matter what agreement they come to, the district says it will still be operating at a bit of a deficit, less with this new contract than what the union was recommending. So I think they're still being cautious, according to what they say after you know tax cuts that they've had. Um, and. Yeah, I think they their argument is that they just want to implement these changes over several years rather than pay that, I don't want to say the wrong number, but five million, millions of dollars to be able to take teachers down to a lower class yeah. load. We wrote about this a little bit on the editorial board, Derek, as you'll recall, and one of the arguments I tried to make was when the legislature responding to the Supreme Court, Kansas Supreme Court, added money into the uh, school funding formula, that money was intended to help students, you know, make it easier for students to learn, not necessarily for teacher raises, although in some districts, particularly rural districts, raises were long overdue. I mean, you got teachers making thirty, thirty-five thousand dollars $35,000 a year in some of those districts. That isn't the case for the most part in the Shawnee Mission District, which we'll come back to. But that the way to help students was to address this class size, class load situation for the teachers so that you do get a lower pupil to teacher ratio, you do give teachers more time to plan, and you improve education. And the board seems to be saying, no, we need three years to figure that out. Yeah, and um, you know, this is a struggle that obviously is nothing new to anybody in Kansas. Uh, if you go to KansasCity.com, go to our guest uh, commentary section, you'll see State Rep Cindy Holscher wrote an op-ed for us about this constant struggle. She's Overland Park um, State Representative. And one of the things she notes is that while this all was going down a week ago tonight on Thursday evening, uh, there was actually a new bill being introduced in the legislature to uh, put forth vouchers to go to private and religious schools to try to take um, some of that money away from the from the public schools. So you know, and the, what what uh, the representative has attributed this to is a general what she calls leftovers from the Sam Brownback um, era in Kansas government of people who just don't prior lawmakers who don't prioritize public education. Right. I think that's an issue. But it didn't, I didn't get the sense that it played a huge role in the Shawnee Mission discussions. Remember, Shawnee Mission teachers are, on the whole, pretty well paid. Now, that's because they've been around for a long time. They live in an urban area. They've got a pretty good union. Uh, and they all, all, many have advanced degrees, which means you can earn some extra money. And I think the fact finder found that Shawnee Mission district teacher salaries were about 30% above the median in the state of Kansas. So there didn't seem to be a lot of public sympathy for teachers in terms of what they earn, but there is sympathy, one would believe, for this workload issue. And so what was the motivation of the board? I mean, did I, I didn't get, I live in Johnson County, I didn't get the sense that Johnson Countyans were clamoring for the board to hold the line on these issues. Uh, and yet they were pretty, uh, pretty adamant that they didn't want, A, to take what the teachers were offering, and B, 
when you impose a three-year contract, that really sends a message too, doesn't it, Sarah? That's not, that's not like we're, we're, we're at impasse, let's take a year and figure it out. That was no, you know, but hell no, in a way. Yeah, yeah, so that meeting um, where they were in closed session for, I think it was four hours, it was a long time, they kept coming out and extending the meeting, and the crowd was you know, not happy throughout that whole process. And then they came out and they did the vote. Um, Jamie Borgman, who's a new school board member, was the only one to vote against it. Um, and they didn't give any public reason at that time. Didn't discuss it, didn't for really why debate they it, yeah. Passed this three-year contract. Um, they since have all kind of issued statements and different things, and a lot have defended the district and that we need to move past this. And, you know, it's costing the district attorney fees and a lot of different money you know, from different revenue sources to be able to keep this up for a whole year of negotiating. Um, And so I think those were a lot of the reasons that they had. Um, But, you know, it'd be great to be behind those closed doors and see what they actually discussed. Uh, Teachers teachers were yelling and booing and, yeah, they were not happy. How do you characterize those crowds, by the way? Is that teachers? Is it parents? Who are are the people who go to those meetings? You know, a lot of former students and, you know, current students as well, which is interesting. And, yeah, a lot of teachers, young families. um, And, yeah, they are the highest paid in the state. And so... I think they kind of get upset that people haven't been sympathizing with them as much. Um, And a lot of them, but the higher paid ones, like you said, have higher degrees, they're older. A lot of the people I've seen are younger teachers who, you know, they're not making that average 70,000 a year salary. Um, And they honestly just feel like they cannot do the best for their students because they're working so much. Right, and again, uh, you know, my own view is one year you get it, but three years is really, really aggressive and the teachers were unhappy do we think Sarah it will go any farther than that I mean is is there a sense that teachers will quit in mass which is one of the options that there will be lawsuits filed legislation filed I mean or is it just sort of anger and frustration in the classroom yeah so it's probably not surprising that the union is threatening these things but it will be interesting to see if teachers decide to walk away from this contract and resign um linda seek the president of the union um, is definitely warning of that she's saying there's going to be a mass exodus you know first year teachers they could go to blue valley and maybe make a comparable um, salary so we'll see if anything like that happens they Does are also blue valley or do other districts have openings? I mean, do they, you know, you could see where they'd have maybe the need for 50 teachers, or I'm just pulling the number right out of the air, but not 500. I mean, not if, you know, a third of the district, Shawnee Mission District decides to quit, there's not going to be a place for them to go at commensurate salaries, one would think. Yeah, that would be a different story, but, you know, if dozens or, you know, less than 50 or something, yeah, there's a teacher shortage across Kansas City. You know, DeSoto schools needs teachers, um, special ed teachers are needed everywhere. Right. So I don't think it would be impossible for people to find new jobs, but of course, you know, that's tearing yeah. your life apart and restarting. Correct. Now, Marae Rose Williams for our staff wrote a story about uh, sort of a, what appeared to be a bit of a of a blue flu on Monday, uh, which has been used in other districts with other teachers where a lot of folks call in, ask for substitutes. Is that happening in the district? Do we so know? This past year, not just with the parade and the Super Bowl <laughs> yeah, and teachers right, right, calling right. in hungover or whatever, um, <laughs> but this past year they, there have been there has been a huge increase in the spending on substitutes, um, which some people in the union have said maybe that counterbalances this five hundred thousand dollars we've been arguing over right. um, for teacher salaries. Um, so you know, teachers have said they're just burnt out, and so they're calling in more. 
you know, there is a little bit of that, I think, going on. Right. And that, now that we should be clear, striking is not possible. You mm-hmm. can't, at least legally, walk off the job. But there are these other approaches that are built in. But it, but the teachers are in kind of a tough spot. It is a take it or leave it three-year deal. Do, do we think that the board uh, or the school administration will do anything to reach out with a bit of an olive branch going forward, or is this going to be just a, you know, a hum under the district for the next three years? That yeah, that's an interesting question. It'll be it'll be fascinating to see if anything does happen in that way. Um, I haven't seen anything come up like that. I think what will be important to watch is in June when they start talking about strategic planning. Are they actually implementing a plan to lower teacher workloads right, over the right. next year? Um, and I should mention that the union also is challenging the legality of that three-year contract, and right. so that might be the next you know thing that we see coming. Because I of think this. one of the things, Derek, uh, that will be interesting to watch is. If the district starts going through some effort to shrink class sizes or, or workloads or thinks about raising money, in three years we could be in the middle of a recession. This, you know, this expansion has been going on far longer than a lot of people thought, and who knows what the economy is going to look like in three years. So at precisely, precisely the time, it'll be difficult to shrink workloads and to give bigger raises. It, it, you know that the, they'll be up against it, and it, I think it's fair to say that in three years, if you haven't figured out a way to rework your your workload problem, the teachers will be just livid at that point, don't you think? Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so the pressure is really on the board in some ways to deliver. Yeah. In an uncertain environment, I think one of the interesting things to me always about school boards is to say, well, we need certainty, we need planning. You have no certainty three years from now. Nobody knows what the economy is going to look like, and nobody knows really what the legislature is going to do three years from now, except we do have a sense that if another recession hits and the economy contracts, there will be less money to send to schools, not more. And we're always going to have children to educate. Yeah, no question Mm -hmm. about it. All right, let's take a break. Sarah, stay where you are. Derek, stay where you are. When we come back, we want to talk about the other side of the coin, which is giving away money for big developers. We'll be right back here on Deep Background. Hey there, this is Derek Donovan of the Kansas City Star Editorial Board, and we hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you like what you hear, help us support this podcast and the journalism that reporters at the Star do every day by subscribing. There's an easy way for you to do it. Head to kansascity.com background. You'll even get a special discount just for being a deep background listener. By subscribing at that URL, you will get three months of unlimited digital access to the star for $1.99 total. That's right, you get access to kansascity.com, the e-edition of the newspaper, our mobile apps, and more for three whole months, and it only costs you $1.99. That's a pretty sweet deal. Plus, you will be supporting journalism that makes a difference in Kansas City. So, go grab your computer or mobile device and head to kansascity.com slash background. And hey, thanks for listening. Okay, back now with my colleague Derek Donovan uh, uh, of the Stars Editorial Board. I'm Dave Helling with the board and Sarah Ritter, a reporter, Johnson County reporter for, for the newspaper. Okay, let's shift gears to look at a story you wrote earlier this week, I think. It's when I, you know, so many stories in the paper you have to read, you get a little confused, but there is tension on the Overland Park City Council as some members, not all, continue to write fairly aggressive checks 
uh, to developers who need or feel they need or ask for incentives of some sort to build things and to bring businesses in. Talk to us about what's going on out there. Because you do not associate yeah. the words tension and Overland Park City Council very often. Yeah, I think it's been building over the past couple of years with council members, Ferris Ferrisotti and Gina Burke, who have taken a harder stance on tax incentives. Um, Gina's more middle of the road, but Ferrisotti will vote no on almost every tax break deal. Um, and you can visibly see the tension between him and developers that come in and attorneys and other council members and the mayor. Um, now with the new council on after the election, um, we have another council member on who's similar to him, Scott Hamblin. And in his first month, um, he took a very bold approach asking for a tax break deal that was approved before he took office to be rescinded. Um, and he started looking into the numbers and said they don't add up. And um, so that's kind of why he's asking for that. Um, that led to a very tense meeting when they actually discussed doing that, where it was really those three against the rest of the council. And it was very personal, and I want to come back to that because I don't want to really get for the podcast into the into the weeds on what this particular deal uh, was about. But it is, and we've talked about this before, it is unquestioned that Overland Park, which was at one time very skeptical of this approach, is not skeptical about it in, in general anymore, right? I mean, that... You know, you can just drive down Metcalf and you can go to 95th and Metcalf where the buildings are going up and understand that uh, that developers see Overland Park as a place where they can do business. Yeah, and I think as competition grows too and as cities even, we talk about the border war um, with the other state, but cities within Johnson County are also competing against each other, which was part of this deal as well, where the company said, you know, we'll close our Lenexa facility if you give us this. If not, we might have to leave Overland Park. I was very clear that they stated that. Um, and so I think, you know, they're using tax incentives for that way. They're using them, you know, to revitalize the downtown and areas that haven't gotten as much investment. But, you know, as the other side says, you know, not much of Overland Park is blighted or really needs, you know, tax dollars to be invested. Let me let me stop you on that point because I think this is very interesting. As I read your story, and again, I'm in a bit of a remove from what's going on in Overland Park, which is why we're having you on the podcast. Is it seemed to be it seemed to me that the opponents were making sort of an economic argument: Hey, we crunched the numbers; these these deals aren't bringing in as much as they say, or it's unwise as a policy matter to pursue these these uh, deals based on the on the figures involved and defenders were saying no we think it's right it'll do the, and there's a clawback mechanism but i didn't hear and you were there you can tell us was there did anybody make sort of a broader equity argument that we just shouldn't be doing this for rich developers when you can go two blocks west of metcalf and find a housing stock that's in serious challenge and you know i mean does anybody say hey look we shouldn't be handing this out even if it works mm -hmm. we shouldn't be handing it out because it isn't fair to the other people in overland park who are paying the full share of taxes yeah i would say overland park is starting to dip its toes into that sort of mindset uh, they've been talking about more about affordable housing and do we want to subsidize you know huge luxury apartment complexes like with brookridge um and i think they're I mean, that's the issue, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you're doing a huge subsidy in this, you know, former golf course, and it's going to be luxury and high rents and all these other things. And there are parts of Overland Park 
that are not blighted, but they need help. I mean, they need help to rebuild those. I mean, they're very old. They're 100 years old. Mm -hmm. I'm fascinated because it's the very argument Kansas City went through 25 years ago, and they're still having it. They still really haven't settled it. So you're telling me that the council members are beginning to hear that kind of ripple. I think so, yeah. I think it's you could see it as mirroring that discussion in Kansas City a little bit at the statewide level in Kansas, too. We're having these conversations about, you know, are there enough, is there enough oversight over these incentive projects and are they working? Um, I think Overland Park, I don't know that it's so much of an equity issue that people are concerned about. Like I said, they're starting to get there. But I think people who have defended the city's use of tax incentive incentives view this new push as anti-growth Overland Park is a phrase I keep hearing. And so you're against all development and against all growth in Overland Park. And I don't think that's necessarily what they're saying, but you do have these threats of we're ruining our relationship with the business community. We right. need to support that. And then the other side saying we don't need to line their pockets. It's funny. We really back, we backed into this. What, what is the 50,000 view uh, description of this project that they are proposing? We didn't tell our listeners that. Yeah. So it's interesting that it's kind of hinged on this early on um, because it is a relatively small tax abatement. It's one that, you know, I saw go through City Hall and I was like, yeah, it's probably not worth writing about. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it's a $14 million project to expand dimensional innovations, which um, does some graphic design work for the Chiefs, for the Royals. They did the big um, book spines downtown right, by right. the library. Um, so they kind of are well known and everybody said it's a cool company. They deserve it. They're kind of bordering Miriam and Kansas City, Kansas there, so it doesn't get a lot of attention there. Needs some investment. The roads aren't great back there. So um, those were kind of the reasons for approving it at the time. Farisati was the only one to vote against it. Um, overall, it's probably you know $350,000 tax abatement. Um, so not huge compared to other deals. But um, yeah, they have started looking into the numbers and saying, you know, are we verifying the data that companies give us? You know, are we auditing these companies? Can we just trust them at face value that they will add 200 jobs and bring 3,000 visitors to the city and these things that they have promised? Yeah. One of the things that I've always been critical with uh, developers are asking for abatements. The argument always is, well, you know, you're going to ab abate these uh, taxes for thus and such period of time. But then once that um, drops off, you know, we're going to be just giving you all this revenue because you've enhanced the value of our property. But one of the things I always think, well, let's say you get a 20-year tax abatement and you build a new luxury office building. In 20 years, when those abatements come off, yeah, you're going to be getting those property revenues, but you're also going to have a 20-year-old building at that point. Right. And, and you'll have the owners of that building coming back and going, hey, we've got a 20-year-old building. We're blighted. We new embankments. That's We're right. Blighted. We need new help. <laughs> and, and we've noted that many times when we do not give these uh, these incentives to developers, they go out and build yeah. them anyway. Yeah. Well, that's the key thing uh, in Kansas City and Overland Park and any place that uses incentives for big development projects is the so-called but-for test, which is, I would not do this unless I get these incentives, which is always, almost always in my experience, an unprovable. I mean, you don't, of course it's but-for, you know, every, no developer's gonna say, nah, I could do this on my own, I just want this, because I want it. I mean, you. so you get into these, and, and, and the problem I think is interesting to me in Overland Park, and Sarah, maybe you can talk about this, is once you do it for one group, it's harder to say no to the next guy. I mean, that's playing a role in this too, isn't it? That once, because Overland Park for years was, I remember they went through hell trying to figure out if they wanted to help Sprint build its world headquarters out in the south part of Overland Park because it went against the grain of, hey, we're, we're Overland Park. We don't need to give incentives. You want to come here, pay the full freight. 
once you do it one time, now you're in trouble. Now, now every developer's going, hey, wait a minute, you gave it to him or her, now you've got to give it to me too. And that seems to be a dynamic in Overland Park as well. I think that's true, yeah, I think that's probably true. And you know, um, council members who support the use of tax incentives always point to the Sprint campus and say, now we're benefiting because the right. um, incentives have run out over those 20 years. Of course, you have no Sprint left, basically. <laughs> yeah, exactly, which they don't point out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that's very true that, you know, and I hear that from council members even who do support the use of incentives that, you know, now developers come and they ask for the world, and which you could expect. Um, but whether the council's really giving that to them or holding true to the standards that they've had over the past decades um, is the question. Yeah, Kansas City's experience shows me that it's harder to say no almost every time. Because And now we're talking about incentives for luxury hotels. Lenexa, I wrote an editorial about this. Lenexa is offering goodies for luxury apartments out on the west edge of that community in a place that's you know spending millions for infrastructure. and. Uh, other projects so it just becomes harder and it also becomes much more political and much more personal which really struck me Sarah about your story mm -hmm. which is not only are some council members in Overland Park critical of their colleagues for being critical of these incentives but they're putting it in very personal terms which again is a little unique in Overland Park yeah you know, I enjoy watching it because they're not afraid to right. kind of take stabs at each other. But um, yeah, it was the most heated argument I've ever seen. And I think there was this feeling of there's this rookie council member coming in trying to, you know, propose changes before he learns what the actual process is. Um, but they really kind of took it past that and were attacking his integrity, were attacking his motives. Um, it was how he felt it was, at least. Um, and, and, there, and, and the accusation is, well, you're just opposing this for political reasons, right. which is a chuckle, because if you believe you're right, uh, then political pressure shouldn't matter. The people are with you, but the idea that you get an advantage politically by being anti-incentive is an interesting concept. And there's some mayoral politics mm -hmm. and other things mixed in. Yeah, it's interesting too. It's gotten you know more tense now that um, Ferris Farisadi is running for mayor, and so the mayor has, um, the sitting mayor, Carl Gerlach has you know spoken out more, and yeah. I think he's become a larger part of these conversations. But, but too. we'll wrap up here. But this particular project, Derek, uh, uh, seems like an interesting poster child, but not much more than that. It's just a place for these broader questions to come up, but. Um, you know, incentives were one of the two big issues, really, in the Kansas City mayoral race. Uh, you know, crime, incentives, maybe tax policy, but a huge deal. People really pay attention to it, particularly with everything that's going on downtown. And I think you can argue that that was one of the things that Quentin really, Quentin Lucas had right. in his back pocket, is that he was not going to be opening the tap for yeah. every uh, incentive that was Of course, requested. in the first six months, he's <laughs> opened the tap for every incentive project that's come forward. But that's another podcast for another day. But this, it's a, just a, the same thing in Overland Park. You see all this stuff downtown. You can't drive in Overland Park and not look up and say, wow, so, you know, the new apartments, new retail on the ground. Level oh, the character of, yeah. of Metcalf Avenue has really has changed, changed so, dramatically. Yeah. And so there's a visible uh, evidence of this change of heart mm -hmm. at City Hall over on 87th Street, Santa Fe and Antioch. And, and um, that means that it may be one of the big issues in the, in the elections to come. 
Yeah, yeah, I definitely think that's going to be, if not the major issue, one of the biggest issues. Are there any other projects we're aware of that are coming down the pike that will be uh, equally uh, disruptive? You know, there it's been relatively quiet except for this, except I think that we are going to see, you know, bigger conversations about smaller deals. You know, a Brook Ridge $200 million deal comes across every 10 years. Yes. But we do have these small, you know, companies. We're expanding. We're going to add jobs. We want a, a little tiny, you know, 50% tax abatement. You can yes. do that, right? Um, and so I think these are going to be attacked more often um, by people who are not in favor of them. And, you know, Ferris Ferris Audi always says, um, you're choosing the winners and losers, and we should be supporting small business more that's been, that's stuck around in the downtown. Right, right. Um, the whole point is that you pick winners and losers when you do it, and 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 the supporters of incentives will say, yeah, we'll just pick it, make everybody a winner, and in which case you don't say no, and that's when the losers really become the people who live in the city, who don't have mm-hmm. businesses, who are paying the full freight on t- on um, on their property taxes and higher sales taxes and other things. That too is a conversation for another day. Sarah Ritter, so great to have you in, and thanks for paying attention to these two extraordinary things that are happening on the uh, west side of the state line. And thanks for covering the parade too. That, you know, that's a deal. We had the whole world out there yesterday. So, and Derek Donovan with the Stars Editorial Board. Derek, thanks for co-hosting. I'm Dave Helling with the Editorial Board. You have been on Deep Background.